This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If there's been any constant in the 2020 Democratic presidential nominating fight, it's been Joe Biden's lead in the state of South Carolina. He's being considered by a whopping two-thirds of the voters there, and he's got a 28-point lead over the field, which he has had through the summer. Can any other candidate make a dent in that? And if so, how will they go about doing it? Well, a few of them have been down in the state lately, trying. Some of the things that that need to change in our economy are very complex. Uh, Some of them are extremely simple. So simple they might be hard to see in the policy conversation. And one of them is people aren't getting paid enough. I'm trying to get everybody a raise. It's that simple. Today, I am here at the University of South Carolina to ask for your support to help me win the primary here in South Carolina. And while Iowa and New Hampshire might get more of the attention, it's historically often South Carolina that is pivotal. Why is that? And just how do politics work in that state? And is it different than any of the others? We will talk about that with Book Gray Mitchell. CBS News' political reporter who is there on the ground. I am Anthony Salvanto, and this is Where Did You Get This Number? And a quick program note, everybody. The other day, as you may have heard, Kamala Harris announced that she was suspending her campaign. Now, we discussed South Carolina before that happened, but the lessons of how the state works are, of course, still really valuable. Enjoy the episode. This is fun. Uh, We are joined today by South Carolina reporter, CBS News political reporter, Lecrae Mitchell. Lecrae, how are you? I'm doing really well. I I have to say you might have the best job uh, out there. You, you get to be in South Carolina, and with all due respect to the wonderful stuff you can find to eat in Iowa, certainly certainly in New Hampshire, you have the best culinary experience perhaps down there in, in South Carolina, at least at least that's my experience. Yeah, I can't disagree with that, Anthony. You know, I have an array of options from good old southern fried fish and chicken to Thai and Mexican, and I have everything here, uh, Mexican food everything right here on my block, actually, on King Street in downtown Charleston. So no complaints on my end at all. As a matter of fact, just on Sunday, Kamala Harris was here and she was in Greenwood, South Carolina and in Bennettsville as well and did a local stop at a restaurant. There's a soul food spot here in Charleston called Hannibal's where candidates frequent. And I was there when Tom Steyer came to visit for the first time after launching his campaign. And it felt almost like Sunday dinner where everyone was crowded around a table. There was all this great food. And I'm there recording thinking to myself, 
man, I wish I was actually a part of this discussion so I could partake in these greens. Um, <laughs> but it is, you know, it's an important part of it allows you to communicate with the voters. Food makes everyone can relate to good food, you know? Yeah, I love that. There's no left and right. There's no 10%, 15%. Exactly. Everybody likes good barbecue. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, look, I mean, let, let's talk about the candidates coming through, some of whom you mentioned. You are stationed there in South Carolina. Joe Biden has a really large lead. And as the campaigns come through, what is it that the other candidates tell you they're trying to accomplish? Is it a strong second place? Is it a showing with a particular set of voters that broadens their appeal? Take us through what those other candidates are trying to do. I think different candidates have different goals. And I think all of them can agree that Biden has a stronghold on the African-American voting block here, especially with older African-Americans. But depending on the candidate, for example, someone like uh, Kamala Harris, who was doing a little bit better in the polls back in July, say, I think what she's trying to do is really activate these different coalitions that she's built. Educators for Kamala, women for Kamala, veterans for Kamala. As a matter of fact, on Saturday, she had a black women's town hall, which was co-hosted by Higher Heights. It's a pack that endorsed her earlier this month. And she said there, look, we haven't been on the scene as long as some of these front runners. So I'm still introducing myself. Right. Whereas a Bernie Sanders who does have that recognition, I think in a place like here, I'm not sure that it's fair to say that he's putting all of his eggs in this South Carolina basket, right? He's got the largest ground game, but it's not like he's moved much from that 16 to 17 percentage range here. And so I think for someone like him, the goal is just to maintain. One of the things you mentioned a couple of times in there, getting their names out, becoming familiar, whereas, you know, Bernie Sanders, you said he was already familiar Talk us through the mechanisms that you see campaigns doing, whether it's Harris or Sanders, as they try to build that familiarity. I think there are a few different components that you've seen across the board from different candidates. I think that churches are huge here. Activating the faith base in South Carolina and in the South in general can make or break a campaign, I think it's fair to say. And so you see candidates... On Sundays when they're in the state, they go to church, they they give remarks, they stay after, they hug people, they shake hands, they take pictures. That's a regular part of any candidate's Sunday uh, here in South Carolina. Another thing that you see is people getting involved in some of these cattle call type events here in the state. So, for example, in October, there was the Charleston County Blue Jam where you had seven candidates here and their teams were here. They set up booths. And so their organizers and volunteers have their shirts on and they're shaking hands and introducing people to the candidate that was there. And even when the candidate can't stop and talk to them, the volunteers are there to give them more information about upcoming events. You see these field office openings popping up where, for example, Cory Booker had one and it became sort of a block party, right? So it was a field office opening, but there was music, there was free food, so people in the community could come and talk to him and take selfies, but also get a plate to go. And so I think those are a few of the mechanisms that you see. But the truth is, Anthony, that looks different for um, 
different parts of the state too, right? So Columbia, Greenville, Charleston are these huge cities here in the state. What you've seen in this cycle, which has been interesting, is that candidates have been making a very specific and pointed push for rural communities. And so mobilizing in those places may look different. Um, For example, in Greenwood, South Carolina, or even Chester, South Carolina, it might be more advantageous to do a small roundtable type gathering at a local church so that the local church can put it in the bulletin and it can get passed around by word of mouth. Whereas if you're in Charleston or Greenville, you might be able to do a bigger rally town hall type of event. One reason possibly for that is that this is a delegate fight as much as it is a straight out one, you know, who won South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And in those rural areas, a candidate can pick up delegates. Mm-hmm. So you can win delegates out there in the more rural CDs, in the more rural areas, and come away from the state with something, even if they don't win. And of course, the campaigns know that. But l- let me let me ask you about the African-American vote in particular. And and folks who are following the campaign have probably heard that, and as you point out in in one of the numbers you you suggested to us before we started talking about this, about 60% of the electorate there will be African-American. So when we asked in our polling uh, whether or not the Democratic presidential candidates in general were paying enough attention, listening to the concerns of African-Americans, we got 52 percent of South Carolina Democrats saying they were paying the right amount, but another 42 percent saying the candidates were paying too little. Uh, How does that play with what you're hearing on the ground in such an important constituency down there? It's And actually, I think we could even talk a bit about what you were talking about before to answer this question, which is these rural communities, right? So within rural South Carolina, you have African-Americans that, I mean, have felt that they have been forgotten about in some senses. Um, I There was an event in Great Falls, South Carolina, very tiny place um, that I attended, and Jill Biden, not not former Vice President Joe Biden, Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden was attending and an older woman who'd lived there, a tree farmer from from Great Falls, started to literally cry when she saw Dr. Biden attend. And she was like, you don't know how much it means to have someone from a presidential team come and visit us. This means the world to us. You know, people don't normally come here. Same thing at a local restaurant in Abbeville, South Carolina, that I visited last week. The The restaurant owner told me people don't come to Abbeville. They, they go to the nearby city where the university is and, and they come to the state, but they don't come to Abbeville, South Carolina. But I do think overall, in some of these rural places, African-Americans have felt forgotten. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Pete Buttigieg, who was down in South Carolina again recently, trying to earn the support of African-American voters who make up such a large part of the Democratic constituency down there. Back right after this. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. 
But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Certainly a big part of our Southern Swing this week is to make sure that we're engaging with African-American voters who have often felt uh, not only kicked around by the Republican Party, but sometimes taken for granted by the Democratic Party. And that means, as a relatively new figure on the national scene in the Democratic Party, I recognize my obligation to have these conversations, to take on board the input, and to share our message. When I get a chance to tell people about what's in our plan for wages and unions, what's in the Douglas plan for black America, uh, we know it it's a great response. Let me bring in Pete Buttigieg here because he's gotten a lot of headlines for making gains, relative gains at least, in New Hampshire and then getting into the top tier in Iowa. Have you heard from voters going, uh, yeah, but that's Iowa, we're different, but that's New Hampshire, we're different? Or have you heard voters going, okay, maybe it's maybe we'll take another look at this guy? I feel like in the beginning when I first got here, I heard a lot of, Iowa is different. That's different. That's not us. And while I still hear that sometimes, I also, you know, for the first time last week, actually heard a voter say to me she was going to be paying attention to what Mayor Pete Buttigieg had to say in the debates because he was doing so well in Iowa. She said he's really doing well there. So I'm going to pay a little more attention to him. Something to mention about Mayor Buttigieg here in South Carolina His team was a little bit later getting on the ground here. And so they hired their state director and their South Carolina-based communications director a little bit later. But I've also heard from, you know, different political leaders here, some of the Charleston County um, Democratic Party chair here, who was telling me that, you know, I asked her which teams that she think was mobilizing the best here. And and Buttigieg's camp came up. She said they have an operation on the ground where they've assigned different volunteers and organizers to keep up with certain blocks of voters and neighborhoods. I think what he's going to run into and from what I hear from voters is there's still this hesitation that he hasn't done the best in relating with African-Americans in South Bend. And this is what I'm... This is not me saying this. This is voters telling me, you know, Lecrae, some of my reservations include he hasn't done well with African-American voters in South Bend. How in the world is he going to be able to connect with us and black voters across the country? Now, a couple of times, Lecrae, you've mentioned the role of churches. And one of the things I think is important to point out about South Carolina, at least that we see in the, the polling, is that. It has a larger proportion of people who call themselves either conservatives or moderates, uh, even among the Democratic voters, than those who call themselves liberal as compared to the other early states. And I wonder if you see anything in the way that people talk or the issues that they present that speaks to this difference and that speaks to what we would consider a more moderate or even conservative stance on issues or social issues um, that differentiates it from what's going on in Iowa or New Hampshire? Yes. No, absolutely. I think the example that I would use is where people stand on LGBTQ rights, for example, right? I think something that has always been fascinating to me is that 
and I've seen it here in South Carolina, is that even within the Democratic Party, you do have people who definitely fall more on the socially conservative end of, you know, the political spectrum. And for an issue or for a topic like LGBTQ rights, more than once when I go to different, um, whether it's Democratic Party meetings held at churches or just church service, and I ask voters where they stand on those issues, People will tell you, you know, they don't agree necessarily with the lifestyle because it contra- they, they believe it contradicts with their faith. And I, I would even venture to say I think that is also that might also be by nature of being in the South, too. I, I grew up in North Florida, which is um, sometimes not considered the South by some. <laughs> but I, I definitely think it's more, you know, Southern. And and that's something that even I've heard growing up. People who consider themselves Democrats falling more conservative on certain issues. And even outside of the church, that just sort of being like, and I want to I want to be careful not to bunch everyone into this group. Right. It's not something that I'm saying every voter here thinks. But I've heard that. Right. And and even from back home that on some of the issues of gay rights and abortion and that sort of deal, people may not necessarily um, they would align more conservatively. It, the old line in Florida is you go north to go south. Right. Yes. The, uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but it. <laughs> Is there any candidate who is speaking directly to that segment of the Democratic Party, that socially conservative segment, or is it just, well, the party is moved to the left and we're going to have to talk about something different? Definitely not, you know, the party has moved to the left and we have to talk about something different because I think that anyone who has a good grasp on how things work here, they realize that because of what we just discussed, that does leave even Democratic voters wanting a more moderate option. I'm, I'm trying to think of a specific example. Um, when Senator Harris was here this past weekend and even yesterday, she did a town hall in Berkeley County here in Goose Creek, South Carolina. And when she went to talking about her Medicare for all plan, she says, My plan is different than some of my other opponents on the Democratic debate stage. My plan does. She almost made it seem like her plan is more realistic without using the word. And so, you know, and she was like, and I'm going to be sure that you have an option and you're able to keep your choice. And so I think like even in that, without saying the word realistic, there are ways that you have to package a message for voters here that don't come off to, oh, I'm giving everything, you know, to anyone for free, right? I I had actually a conversation with a, a city mayor here, and he said to me, people don't want things for free here. They just want an opportunity to be able to get their American dream. Lecrae, we were exchanging, exchanging a couple of emails before we started this uh, recording. And one of the things that you presented was the major the fact that the majority of Democrats in the presidential primary will probably be women and and by a large percentage. And you 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 quoted 62%. And one of the things that you enlisted as an issue of concern of women besides education and affordable health care that cut across a lot of groups was was returning of troops. Now, South Carolina, of course, it has a very heavy 
uh, contribution to the U.S. military and and a lot of service folks, both retired and and active down there. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and why uh, you wrote Returning of Troops and how that affects families and how that affects the way in which people are looking at this campaign? Absolutely. I can think of two examples, one being at a town hall a few weeks back where a woman was asking a question about what the candidate planned to do for troops. And she got really emotional. It was in Aiken, South Carolina. And she started describing how the quality of life for her family had not been great. And um, it became sort of a moment during this town hall, definitely a tone shift and a mood shift in the room. Someone and her husband, I believe it was, had been deployed. And um, and I guess I guess before he was deployed, though, they were living on a, a base somewhere where the quality of living wasn't the best either because she had brought that up, too. And that wasn't the first time that's happened. You know, I was at a town hall this past weekend where another military spouse told me that is the top issue for her. You know, who's which candidate is going to bring home her husband from this from what she called, you know, an endless war. And, and, and to branch out a bit, that 62.7 percent um, of women who voted in the 2016 in the 2016 South Carolina Democratic presidential primary. You know, this is a block Women in this state are a highly coveted block, I'd say, right? You've got different campaigns who have created women for Kamala, women for Corey, different coalitions of women, educators for ex-candidate. I think that no one is taking for granted how important women, especially black women, are going to be in this election. And I'll tell you, from black women that I've spoken to, they've got there's a group here called Black Women Vote 2020. And the creator of that group said, we are so tired of feeling like we put in all the work for these for some of these presidential campaigns. We make the phone calls, we do the canvassing, we put together these round tables with some of our other book club girlfriends and that sort of deal. We put in all this work and this time around, we want to see the dividend. We want to feel like the candidate that we help elect is going to remember us and not just mention us and not just say, you know, job well done, but actually consider our thoughts and opinions at the table. And you have seen some candidates make a concerted effort to make sure to reach that block before Beto O'Rourke dropped out. He was known for he would have these small, intimate roundtables with um with groups like the one that I just mentioned. And for an hour, he would listen and, and he would barely talk. And I remember talking to women after events like that. And they said, you know, I don't even know if he can win. But gosh, it felt good to feel heard and not just heard in the way of, oh, we're going to write these notes down and thank you so much and a pat on the shoulder. Thanks for your time. No, but in a way where they felt like it was going to actually be implemented into policies. And and when they hear those sort of stories come up again on the debate stage, that means a lot for them. And so women voters here in the state um, are definitely going to play a role in this presidential primary. And I think that candidates here understand that and have, and have tried to make efforts to uh, to reach that block. That is that is so important. Uh, look, Lecrae, I have one last question, kind of big picture looking forward. Of the four early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and then South Carolina, South Carolina is the only one that almost certainly won't be 
on the battleground list come next fall in 2020's general election. Right. Iowa may be trending away from the Democrats, but certainly has voted for Democrats uh, before Donald Trump won it. New Hampshire, a perennial swing state, Nevada uh, as well. Is there ever a sense among the Democrats there that they have to make the most of this because these candidates might not be coming back because these candidates might be saying, look, we're going to win your vote. And then we're off to the Ohio's and Pennsylvania's and other battleground states of the world. And if so, how does that affect the way the conversation goes there? I have people tell me all the time, you moved here? You moved here from New York? Oh, you're you're probably leaving in February, right? Are you leaving after the primary? And um, and then I say, yes, actually, I am. And there is definitely a sense within uh, the Democratic Party here that they feel that after the primary in February, they're forgotten about. But I will say there's an energy amongst them that what I find more often than not is that they take the role that they have to play in this part of the process seriously. And even the people who've told me they feel like they get forgotten about after February, they know how much of a role, and, and or at least some people know. I think there are definitely groups of people who still don't understand the power of their vote here because I also get plenty of people who say, why are you here from New York? You moved here to cover us. But for those who do know, I think there is a sense of pride and responsibility that comes with knowing the role that they play in electing who this Democratic nominee is going to be and and essentially who will then become the president, right? Because there is a, there are plenty of people here who are politically plugged in who feel that the person that wins South Carolina's primary will go on to have a good shot in the general. I think the other thing is that you, even though this state has not elected a Democrat, a Democratic candidate since Jimmy Carter, there is there is definitely like a wave or like a you know almost like a they're not necessarily on the front lines but a wave of folks here who feel that they are in a position to really shift. And you would be surprised how many times I hear people bring up Florida and Georgia and they say, look at what happened with Mayor Gillum. Look at what happened in Florida. Look at what happened with um, Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Um, We're hopeful. We're hopeful that, you know, with time, South Carolina can become purple. Like, I hear that more than one would think. And what what I really like about it is we spend so much time, all of us, talking about the horse race and seeing this through the lens of the candidates. And what's so important is to see it through the words and the uh, and to see it through the words of the voters and see it through the issues that they're raising and the things that are happening in these states that we wouldn't ordinarily hear about on the national news and we can only hear about from folks like you who are there on the ground and hearing from people and going to these meetings when they're turning out. So that makes that perspective just all the more important. And it's really what these campaigns are all about for those of us watching it. I couldn't agree with you more. It's been a pleasure to be able to talk to voters here. That is definitely the most fruitful part of what I think we do as campaign reporters, really getting to talk to the people. You know, in a sense, we are we are doing grassroots of our own, you know, talking to dozens of voters um, per event, trying to just get a sense of 
what they think, what they feel, what's important to them. And does this election even matter? And if so, why? Um, and being able to, to tell everyone about what we're hearing. So that's definitely my favorite part of this job. Well, uh, and and you're great at it. So uh, everybody appreciates the reporting and we will talk again. Um, so so thank you. In the meantime, thank you very much for joining us. And this has been this has been really insightful. Thank you. Lecrae Mitchell, CBS News political reporter down there in South Carolina. Thank you. That's going to wrap this episode. Where did you get this number? Let me thank, as always, my intrepid producer, Alan Pang, along with Maeve Burke and Jake Rosen for their help in putting all this together. And, of course, everybody at CBS News Radio, along with you, most of all. Thank you for listening. Please download, subscribe, and give us a rating if you like what you have heard. I'm Anthony Salvanto for Where Did You Get This Number? We'll talk next week. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.